Business, mashallah, on the side, the day of Eid, so she borrows it from Abdullah. Spent on all those pictures and posters. If you go to Google and you type Ashura, you cannot take that solution and apply it twice and a couple of ziyara. That's it. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Since the establishment of the Safawi dynasty. The very first Shi'i state that adhered to the Ashari school of thought. And until today, many scholars from other denominations of the religion of Islam, outside the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt and Orientalists, have suggested that prior to the Safawi dynasty and the establishment of the very first Ithna Ashari state, there was no such thing as Shi'ism. There was no such thing as Asma of Amir al Mu'mineen, Fatima al Zahra, Al Imam Hassan and Hussein, and the 12 Imams. There was no such thing as Khilafah of Ali and there was no such thing as 12 Imams and there was such, no such things as visiting the shrines of the progeny of Rasulullah. And our scholars in response have given powerful, powerful responses. Many books have been authored since the very first allegation and until today. And this debate is ongoing. However, I believe that if a person is truly looking for the truth, then the evidence presented by our ulama is extremely sufficient in response to every one of those allegations. First of all, was Shi'ism the creation of the Safawi dynasty? And prior to that, there was no such thing as Shi'ism? Absolutely not. Shi'ism was created at the very first days of the religion of Islam. When Rasulullah called on to Amir al-Mu'mineen and he says to him, Ya Ali, Go and invite 40 of our family members, the uncles and the cousins and the nephews. Invite them so that I can declare the religion of Islam publicly to them. And this is mentioned in the Holy Quran. And the Mufassirin have mentioned this incident. Books of history have altogether unanimously spoken of this event. The event of the Indar. And there, Amir al-Mu'mineen invited the family. Rasulullah told them, you all know the story, that who is there that's going to assist me and become my ally in this task? Nobody accepted this responsibility except that young man, Ali ibn Abi Talib. So there, Rasulullah put his hand above his head and he said, be a witness. 
That this Ali is my brother, he's my wazir, and he's my khalifa after me. Therefore, from then, Rasulullah had appointed his khalifa. Anta minni bimanzilati Haruna min Musa illa innahu la nabiya ba'di. You are to me like Aaron was to Moses, except there is no prophet after me. Rasulullah spoke of the knowledge of Amir al-Mu'mineen when he said, Ana madinatul ilm wa aliyun. Babuha, I am the city of knowledge. And Ali is the gate, meaning Ali is the most knowledgeable after me. And if he is the most knowledgeable, then who is worthy to be above him? Who's going to lead the most knowledgeable? The most knowledgeable is ought to be the leader of the Muslim community after Rasulullah. The incident of Ghadir. The incident of Ghadir is not enough evidence that Rasulullah had chosen a Khalifa after him. In fact, amongst the companions of Rasulullah, the greatest of companions of Rasulullah and the most popular of companions of Rasulullah came and gave allegiance to Ali. They became the Shia of Ali, the followers of Ali. And they understood that Ali ibn Abi Talib has been appointed as the Khalifa. Bakhin, bakhin laka ya Abal Hassan. Good news to you, Ya Abal Hassan. They said to him, You are now my Mawla and the Mawla of every Mu'min and Mu'mina. This is all part of history. So the Safawi Empire and the Safawi dynasty did not create something called Shi'azm. Shi'azm had been there since the time of Rasulullah onwards. And the Usma of the Imams, the knowledge of the Imams, let us hypothetically suggest that there is no evidence whatsoever on the Usma of Al-Baqir or Al-Sadiq or Imam Al-Kadhim or Imam Al-Ridha. Bring me one incident, one incident in history. And history writes the good and the bad. The history that we find of other companions and other personalities or other scholars speaks of the time that they did the good and they had positive impact on the religion of Islam and the time that they made mistakes. But bring me one time, one incident where there is a mistake recorded by Imam al-Ridha or Imam al-Baqir or Imam al-Sadiq and furthermore, their ilm. Bring me one Individual that claims I taught Al-Baqir, or I taught Al-Sadiq, or I was the teacher of, for example, Imam Al-Kadhim, or I was the teacher of Imam Al-Jawad. There isn't one name in history where those individuals, regardless of their age, were in need of the knowledge of others, but of course, in every era and every time, scholars and the entire community of Muslims were in need of their knowledge. Therefore, he was the only man that was capable to sit on the minbar and say, Saluni qabla an tafquduni. Ask me before you lose me. Saluni an turuq samawat Ask me of the heavens and the universe. And I shall give you an accurate response. Al-Imam Al-Jawad, Al-Imam Al-Baqir, Imam Al-Sadiq, at whatever age they were, they never were in short of answers, or answers that were inaccurate, or they were incapable of leading the journey of knowledge for the Muslim Ummah. So, our scholars have done a great job in responding to this allegation.
However, there is one area that is undeveloped, unspoken of. And that is the influence of Safawism and the Safawi period on Shi'ism. As in, there was something called Shi'ism and it existed. But by the establishment of the Safawi Empire and the Safawi dynasty, how was it that this Shi'ism was then impacted and influenced and distorted? And today, you look at the behavior of some of the Shia, some of those who adhere to the school of Ahlul Bayt, are the followers of Ali, are the followers of Hassan, are the followers of Hussein, are the followers of Ja'far ibn Muhammad al Sadiq, and you're astonished at their belief and behavior to an extent that you wonder is this truly something that Allah would want? Is this something that Rasulullah would accept? Is this something that Imam Al-Hasan and Imam Al-Hussein would want to be part of? And I'll give you examples. I'll give you three examples before we finish the introduction and get into the body of the discussion. First, today if you go to Google and you type Ashura and you go to the images, what do you see? You see Individuals self-flagellating themselves, and there's blood. But not only that, but flagellating their children. A six-month-year-old kid, a five-year-old child, and somebody's hitting them with a knife and they're bleeding. And underneath, this is the explanation of Ashura. This represents Ashura. Child abuse in the name of Imam al-Hussein. Flagellation of children. And then who's to be blamed? Where do we throw the blame on? We throw the blame on Imam al-Hussein. So imagine if Imam al-Hussein was present today. They would have to go and ask him. The media would go and ask him. There is people hitting themselves and their children and infants that cannot defend themselves. A father is cutting the head of his child in your name. What do you, how do you feel about that? What would be the response of Imam al-Hussein? And we wonder, do we think of such events and occurrences before, we, before they take their course of action within our community? Another example. And of course, when I we don't have time to dwell into one or two or ten examples. But you've also seen videos of parents and fathers dragging their children so that they would run above burning coal. Burning coal! Let's run over this burning coal! Why? So that we can remind ourselves of the tragedy of Ashura, the tragedy of Imam al-Hussein. And now this is public. The whole world sees this. It's all over YouTube and social media. And again, we say this is part of commemorating Imam al-Hussein. We've brought down this message of Imam al-Hussein so much. We do the ziyara on the day of Arba'in. That you gave your sacrifice for the sake of knowledge. And you gave your sacrifice for the sake of the awareness. And to save humanity, 
Yet, I'm going to run on coal, burning coal, to commemorate you. Another example. Let's move on from this area. Another example. Many of you have gone to Arba'een. Inshallah, those who have, haven't gone will go. And it's uh, millions of people. Nobody's paying them to be there. Nobody is offering them worldly positions to be there. They are going out of their way and leaving the comfort of their homes and spending money and walking long distances. Not for any other reason besides Imam al-Hussein and the love of Hussein and repaying their allegiance for Imam al-Hussein. True? And this in itself is the miracle of Allah for Hussein. This in itself tells you that there is a supernatural power behind the name of Hussein and the sacrifice of Hussein and the goals and the objectives and the mission of Hussein. However, people go and the journey begins from Najaf and there are poles from Karbala to Najaf and you have all seen them. Besides every pole, there you see a picture. Picture of whom? Picture of ulama. And then you enter Najaf or you enter Karbala and at the entrances you see huge posters of ulama and scholars. And we wonder, isn't somebody paying for this? Isn't money being spent on all those pictures and posters? And what is their value? What do they achieve? Imagine you're walking in the Arba'een journey and you come across a picture of a specific alim. And you say, well since I saw his picture here, then I should follow him. And then you walk to the next pole and you see a bigger one of another alam and you say, since his picture is bigger, then his knowledge must be more. So I should follow him. Is this the philosophy? You get inside Karbala or Najaf and you see huge posters. There's money being spent on this, brothers. And I'm not accusing anybody of corruption and I'm not saying there's khums money being involved. None of that. I'm, I'm not going out of my way to say such things. But there is money being spent there. We have to educate our community that this is wrong. If you have that much money, go and spend it on the poor people of Karbala. There are children in Karbala who do not afford more than one loaf of bread on daily basis. They do not have shoes, they do not have medication, they do not have clean water, they do not have homes. Yet we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on posters. Why? Because we have learned that some personalities are above the religion. Some personalities are above the principles of the religion. Putting people on the pedestal. While those individuals and those personalities must serve the religion, not the other way around. The religion and the religious are not there to serve their interest, but they are there to serve the interest of the religion and the religious. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the ulama themselves are the ones that say go and make posters for us and put them. I'd... No. 
But once there is a mistake, it needs to be stopped and fixed. And you wonder, where did this come from? Putting those personalities above the message itself and the principles of the message itself. Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, as he was the Khalifa and the ultimate ruler, they told him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, here there is a palace in Kufa. This is the palace of the Khalifa. He says, I'm not going to live in the palace. He built himself a small home and he went in that home and they say that the house, he did not have time to build a roof for the house. So he used palm trees to cover the roof and he would not be able to stand fully in his house. He would have to duck and walk into his residence. And he kept his bedroom at the entrance of the house. So that if somebody came behind the door and said, Ya Khalifa al-Muslimin, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, he wouldn't have to walk from the end of the house to the entrance of the house to solve the problem of this person. He would be right at the entrance. People come, they're asking, where's the Khalifa? Because in the masjid, you couldn't tell which one was Ali ibn Abi Talib. He wore the same, dressed the same, spoke the same, had no bodyguards, had no entourage around him, was not asking for specific positions and glory. So people would come and they look around the masjid, where is the Khalifa? They would have to ask. One day, Amir al-Mu'mineen, this personality will never be repeated. Believe me. He sees his daughter and he was the most powerful man. The Khalifa of the Muslims. He sees his daughter and she's wearing a pearl necklace. Beautiful pearl necklace. So he says to her, he had multiple daughters, many daughters. He says to her, where did you get this necklace from? And she says to him, this necklace does not belong to me. The treasurer had informed me that there is a pearl necklace at the treasury. So I asked him, allow me to use it for three days to celebrate Eid al-Adha. The daughter of the Khalifa, the other Khulafa, they were swimming in gold and silver and money and wealth. One of the representatives of the third Khalifa, unfortunately I don't have time to give you details, one of his representatives, his governors, when he died, he had one million golden dinars and one million Arabian horses as an inheritance. The money of the Muslimin became the inheritance of their family. Here is the daughter of Amir al-Mu'min. She cannot afford jewelry on the day of Eid, so she borrows it from Abu Arif, Abu Rafiq, the treasurer. Amir al-Mu'minin says, Abu Rafiq, he asks his daughter, he says, Abu Rafiq gave you this necklace? He says, yes, I borrowed it for three days and I will return it to him. And I've written a statement guaranteeing that it will return three days after the Eid. Amir al-Mu'mineen stood. He went to the treasurer. Ya Abu Rafiq, come. And Abu Rafiq, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, 
What's happening? What have I done? He says to him, without the permission of the Muslims, you differentiated between them and my daughter. You gave my daughter the pearl necklace so that she can celebrate the Eid, while the rest of the Muslims would not have such a privilege. Ya Abu Rafi' go and take back the pearl necklace from her. So Abu Rafi' says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mini, please. I have a written statement from her. She's borrowing it. I did not give it to her. He says, Ya Abu Rafi', if you would have given it to her, I would have amputated your arm. Because that would have been theft. And her arm would have been the first arm of Bani Hashim, a Sayyid woman, for her arm to be amputated to. I don't differentiate between you, my treasurer, and my daughter. You are lucky that there is such an agreement. And you are lucky that she's only borrowing this money. This was Amir al-Mu'mineen salawatullahi wa salamuhu Third area. Shi'azam came to abolish innovation and bid'ah. So, you've all heard from this pulpit and many pulpits around the world, that's why is it that we do not pray the taraweeh prayers? It's because it didn't exist in the time of Rasulullah. Why is it that there, we do not believe in the extra part of the adhan? Because it didn't exist in the time of Rasulullah. We all know this. But do we observe what we do of innovations? And I'll give you a small example. Why do we have to go look in details and trouble ourselves? You go to the shrine of Imam Hussein, the shrine of Imam al-Ridha, the shrine of Amir al-Mu'mineen. And we all know that we have to prostrate on soil. We, we, we are taught by the religion of Islam that we have to prostrate on this earth, this soil. So we're going to buy the, the, the idea as doing sujood on soil. There's nothing more to it. You go and you buy this muhr or this turba, and there you find the most amazing things. Shapes. Made it into a home, the turba. And there is, you know, uh, a mirror sometimes. All sorts of calligraphy. This is not innovation? What is this, a uh, makeup kit or a turba? A turba is meant to be part of the soil that we prostrate on. But when we turn it into a lucrative business, mashallah, on the size and the shape and the color and the different calligraphies, we don't stop and wonder, is this something okay? Or is this going to defame everything that the madhab of Ahlul Bayt stands for? Yes, sometimes we don't police ourselves. You know, and there are some personalities like that as well where they become the canine unit of Allah without being paid, huh? they're not hired by Allah, Allah didn't ask them to do that but they become the police of Allah they observe everyone and anyone besides themselves brother, why did you do this? why are you, for example, are your children doing this? why is your hairstyle like this? why did you do but they, we don't observe ourselves. I don't look at myself. Amir al-Mu'mineen says, if you observe yourself and your own mistakes, you would be too busy to judge others. You won't make it. You won't have time to go and become the police of Allah like a hawk on other people. And unfortunately, 
When those individuals are not religious, they don't judge anybody. Because he's not religious. When they become religious is when the problem starts. Let him go to Hajj twice and a couple of ziyarah. That's it. Now nobody is allowed to make any mistake in the community because he's there to correct them. Embarrass them. Expose them. The influence of the Safawis and the Safawi period exists until today. And it is time that scholars and the seminarians and the seminary, as much as we give time to fiqh, as much as we give time to the rituals of hajj and the rituals of salah and the laws of siyam, we research the influence, the outside influence on our belief and our practice and more importantly, more importantly, to offer new solutions to the problems that we face on daily basis. There's things that come up every single day. We don't have a solution for them. And sometimes we offer solutions, but the solutions are only good for Najaf and Karbala and Qom. They're not universal solutions. You cannot take that solution and apply it to New York City. You cannot take that solution and apply it, for example, to London or Sydney. Those are, by, what I'm about to tell you are not my words. They are the words of Allama Mutahari. What he says, he says, a scholar that can solve the problem of the ummah, not locally, as a scholar that knows the world and its affairs on daily basis. How? He gives examples. He says a scholar who's from a village is different than a scholar who's from a city. And a scholar who's from a city is different than a scholar that has been well-traveled around the world. And he has seen different civilizations. And he has seen different religions and ethnicities and cultures and history and has been introduced to the world. He automatically will think differently. Allama Sayyid Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, one of our greatest of scholars, the martyr by Saddam Hussein. You know what he says? He has a beautiful statement in the introduction of his book, Our Economy. He says, there are many things that affect ijtihad and mujtahids, many things. Amongst them is the language, amongst them is the school, amongst them is the understanding of history, amongst them is the understanding of the Arabic language, amongst them is the understanding of Ilm al-Rajal, amongst them is the understanding of Hadith. But he says one of them is ignored, and we don't talk about it. It's the inside of the scholar, it's his state of mind and his mood that also affects his ijtihad. You know, you sometimes go to work and you're not in a good mood that day will probably not be the most successful of your days. And sometimes you go and you're happy. And this client comes and you're so 
welcoming, and then that will most probably be a good day for you. Scholars are the same. They have good days and bad days. Some of them are happy and some of them are sad. Some of them are depressed and some of them are not. Some of them have gone through tribulations in that period and some of them are not. That also affects their mood. That also affects the way they perceive the world. What I'm trying to say is being able to observe the world will also give me the ability to give solutions that can be worldwide solutions, not just local solutions. And part of that is observing the Shi'ism today and the effects, the outside effects to Shi'ism. <coughs> and how the Safawi period, this 250 years, has played an enormous role in some of the changes that we observe today. Allow me to speak of them very briefly and conclude. Number one, let us discuss the concept of our understanding of the position of Ahlul Bayt themselves. We understand through the teachings of Ahlul Bayt, through the behavior of Ahlul Bayt, through the pure understanding of the madrasa and the school of Ahlul Bayt that they are the wasila to Rasulullah. And they safeguard the sunnah of Rasulullah. True. And they are the representatives of the Qur'an. They are the ones that teach us how to obey Allah and follow the footsteps of Rasulullah, which secures the satisfaction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So if we disobey Allah, we have disobeyed them. Because their command is to obey Allah. Now, you come across hadiths, and you will know if this is a hadith or not just now. You will come across literature in our books. And I quote one of them to you. A hadith Qudsi. Hadith Qudsi is by whom? By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Almighty Himself. That the lovers of Ali... Listen to this, the lovers of Ali will end up in paradise even if they disobey me. Here's Ali, here's Allah. Allah says, the lovers of Ali will enter paradise even if they disobey me. And those who obey me will end up in hellfire if they dislike Ali ibn Abi Talib. A lover of Ali... What is the problem with this? A lover of Ali will not disobey Allah. A follower of Ali will not disobey Allah. And there isn't a competition between Allah and Imam Ali so that the sinner, the one that sins towards Allah, but loves Ali, and the one that loves Ali but sins towards Allah, this, when they put them next to each other, the one that disobeys Allah will win. Why? Because he has Ali. The one that has Ali has Allah. There is no such thing as two camps. And let us be frank. Let us be honest. Sometimes people will sit on this mimbar and other manabir around the world and will tell you this, that you can sit as much as you want. Do whatever you like. 
At the end of the day, if you have the love of Ali, then you will enter paradise. Wah, 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 wah. Subhanallah, mashallah. Is this where we bought Ahlul Bayt now? This is our, this, there is an understanding of Ahlul Bayt that kept, and Ahlul Bayt teach Imam al-Sadiq, Imam al-Baqir, Imam Zayn al-Abideen. What did they ta What did they teach their followers? Did they teach them? Or else why did he teach them Dua Kumail and Abu Hamza Thamali and Jawshan al-Kabir and Jawshan al-Saghir and all those du'as? Habibi, you love me, you don't need all those du'as, go. Go have fun. Why are you wasting your time in obedience? Don't you know that if you love us, you're going to go to heaven? Go sin as much as you want. In fact, the concept of shafa'ah, the way it is introduced by Ahlul Bayt and the Quran, is of course something nobody can doubt. That Ahlul Bayt, Rasulullah, even the soil of Karbala, they have shafa'ah. There's no, no question about that. But the problem is, when I introduce this scenario, that listen, there is somebody who's committed a crime, let's say murder, and the judge is his friend. The judge is his close friend, so he goes with this file and he says, the judge says, what did you do? He says, murder. He says, no problem. Me and you. So I erase this murder. It's not a problem. In fact... I erase the sin and turn it into a good deed. So, go and commit as much sin as you like because we're going to erase it and convert it into a good deed. If a judge did this, we would call him corrupt. But we accuse Ahlul Bayt of this. I mean, we want to believe that all our sins in the day of judgment will be erased. Just like the Christians believe that the blood of Jesus will erase all their sins and that makes it okay for us now to sin. Well, we have misunderstood the concept of shafa'ah. Yes, the shafa'ah, shafa'ati li ahlil kaba'ir min ummati. Intercession is there. And it is for the sinners. And we are all sinners. And we are all in need of the shafa'ah of Ahlul Bayt. But there is a fine line. Deliberately sinning or sinning because we are human. And we are fallible. And we fall into the trap of shaitan. However, because our exemplatory figures are the Ahlul Bayt, we, try, we strive to be like them. And if we make mistakes... Here and there, then their shafa'ah will intercede and help us in the day of judgment. There's two, two ways of introducing this topic. There's two ways of understanding it. <coughs> Why? Why did those things get misunderstood and what does it have to do with the Safawis? Because in the Ali Qapu palace of the Shah, Safawi Shah, there was alcohol. And there was drinking. And there were sins. How do we explain the fact that we should give this allegiance to this Shah who is also a sinner? We say to them, this Shah is different than the Atman Shah. This Shah carries the love of Ali, so his sins will be erased. They won't exist. Because he carries the love of Ali, but he drinks. It's okay. He is the lover of the Shia of Ali. Another... Occurrence that has 
had a great impact until today on Shia Islam is the fact that at that period, Majalis became something that people can have. And, and this is good. Prior to that, nobody can have Majalis freely, but now because this is a Shi'i state, you can have Majalis in your home, you can have Majalis wherever you like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not what we're critiquing. critiquing. But there, there was a new role, a new position introduced. For whom? For people called Dakers. And people called Nohe Khan and Rauza Khan. What was their job? Was to sit on the minbar and recite the Masa'ib. And there is nothing wrong with that. And people cry and there is nothing wrong with that. But what happened was, then, the art of creating stories and fictitions in the Masa'ib of Ahlul Bayt. And slowly the role of the ulama was removed out of the picture, and who was introduced? The role of the Dhakir of Imam al-Hussein. And nobody can say anything. What? Is the Dhakir of Imam al-Hussein? You don't... But what he's saying doesn't make sense. What he's saying is not, not in... I heard, this is not in the time of the Safawis, I heard this from public television, on a satellite TV, from somebody who was sitting on the member, he says, what I'm about to tell you, you will not find it in any book. Habibi, where did you get it? <laughs> I mean, at least tell me it's in some book, fabricated book, whatever kind of book, but don't tell me what I'm about to tell you, you will not find it in any book. And they spread like wildfire. And soon the role of the ulama now was undermined. The member belonged to people who had a beautiful voice, who were able to have oratory powers. And unfortunately, until today, you find that the Madhab of Ahl al-Bayt and the school of Ahl al-Bayt gets, gets its information from two sets of people, the ulama, where do you find their works? In books. Do we read books? Huh? But we listen. And who is the one that we listen to? Well, you know the answer to that. Brothers, we are in a stage in which some of the practices some of the misunderstandings can no longer be explained. They need to be understood. And they need to return to the true teachings of Amir al-Mu'mineen. Let us not fool ourselves. The 72 companions of Imam al-Husayn are our role models. This is what we have to remind ourselves with. What was, what was their personality like? The companions of Amir al-Mu'mineen such as Ammar, Miqdad, Abu Dhar, Maytham al-Tammar, they are our role models. They are the pioneers of Shi'ism. They are the ones that are ought to be celebrated and understood. Those examples are the ones that were the ulama. And you know, sometimes you speak and they tell you, say it, it's better for a speaker not to say controversial things. 
Look at this speaker, for example. 30 years he's been speaking. Nobody can say he said something wrong. This is a good time. I say, you know, you should have been there to give this advice to Maytham and Tamar. And you should have been there to give this advice to Ammar. And you should have been there to give this advice to Abu Dhar and Muqdad and Imam Ali himself. He would have really appreciated this advice. Because you know why? Because Imam Ali didn't care what people thought. He had to say what he had to say. Abu Dhar was killed because he spoke the truth. If you would have been there to give him this advice, maybe he would have, you know, said, let's please Muawiyah, why do we have to? You know, let's be like any other speaker. Ammar, why did he have to go through this trouble, poor guy? If you were there to give him the advice, don't say controversial things, don't hurt people's feelings, then he would have spared his life. Amir al-Mu'mineen himself, every time he stood on the minbar and he spoke the sermons, go and read Nahj al-Balagha. What was on, what was his objective? What was his mission and what were his goals? To please those people listening to him or to speak the haqq and the truth and to make sure that the change is positive towards the community. And in fact, Imam al-Hussein himself, Imam al-Hussein could have easily said, you know, make a deal with Yazid. Why do we have to go through all this trouble? He not only spoke the truth, but he gave his blood for the truth. He gave everything that he could for the sake of Haqq. And in every ziyar of every Imam, you will read the statement. And with this statement, I leave you tonight. لا يأخذه في الله أحسنت. What does that mean? لا يأخذه في الله لومة لائم Meaning for the sake of Allah he cares not. This is one of the ways that you greet and salute the Imam. أقمت الصلاة وآتيت الزكاة وأمرت بمعروف One of them is لا يأخذه في الله لومة لائم What does that mean? That for the sake of propagating the message of Allah and pleasing Allah he cares not about the opinion of people, anyone. As long as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased. And today, we must be able to install back the values, brothers, and the principles of Ahlul Bayt salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhim. And we must and we must truly understand them. Wallahi, we know their names and we memorize their sequence. But do I even know, was Imam al-Jawad in the time of Bani al-Abbas or was he in the time of Bani Umayyah? And why is, what was the responsibility of the Imam at that period? And what were, what were the difficulties that he faced? When you come and examine the Imam, you have to examine the Khulafa of his time. Who was the Khalifa of his time? How did he treat the Imam? Who were the ulama that sided with the Khalifa against this Imam? The expansion of the territory of Islam, where had it reached? And those new ideas that had reached in the midst of the Muslims, how did the Imams combat them with knowledge, with dua, with training their companions to become the ambassadors of Islam? 
This is then doing justice to the Imams. This is then understanding the core principles of Tashayyub, which was introduced by Rasulullah on the very first days of the birth of Islam. And this is exactly why we honor the Za'areen of Imam al-Hussein. And we pray to be amongst the Za'areen of Imam al-Hussein. And we yearn to be in the shrine of Imam al-Hussein, not because there is a mausoleum and golden, no. Because there lies the man of truth and haqq against batil. Because there lies the man who gave everything he had for the sake of Allah. Because I want to go there and remind myself of his principles. Remind myself of his great sacrifice. To try and to seek from his lessons and incorporate them in my life. This is the value of the ziyarah of Imam al-Hussein. To go there and to cleanse myself of sin. Say, Ya Aba Abdullah, I am your za'ar, I am ashamed to come to you with sin. Cleanse me so that I can be accepted as one of your za'areen. Ya Aba Abdullah, I struggle in the obedience of Allah. You help me and inspire me to become an obedient servant of Allah. You become the wasila to the Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the reason why we yearn to be at the shrine of Imam al-Husayn, amongst the za'areen of Imam al-Husayn. The ziyarah of Arba'een is not just a walk or a ziyarah, but it's a school of thought. It's a tree full of the most beautiful of roots. And today is the eve of Arba'een. While millions of people flock towards the shrine of Imam al-Hussein. While they are received by the Imam and his brother Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas as the guests of the Imam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us the ziyarah of Imam al-Hussein. The ziyarah of his brother and his father and his infallible children. And more importantly, to make us amongst their true Shia and followers. Amongst those who protect the identity of the followers of Ahlul Bayt. Spread the teachings of Ahlul Bayt. Become their representative with our actions, with our values, with our morality, with our ethics. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.